Well, even if you, like me, are not a fan of the sport of golf, my guess is that many of you, the majority of you, have at least heard the name of Tiger Woods. Now, Tiger Woods is something like the, the Michael Jordan of golf or the, the Cristiano Ronaldo of golf. He might be the best golfer who has ever lived. He has won countless golf tournaments. Now, one tradition in golf is that when a player begins a golf tournament, when they are about to begin the, the first hole of the tournament, they're introduced to the fans by an announcer. There's an announcer by the first hole who introduces these golfers as they're about to hit their first shot. So the announcer will give their name, they'll tell where they're from, and then that announcer will list some of those golfers' major accomplishments. Now, there is a, a video from a tournament that took place a number of years ago in which this is happening with Tiger Woods. He's being introduced by the announcer before he hits his first shot of the tournament. So the announcer gives his name and his hometown, and then she tells the, the total number of times he has won a golf tournament, and then begins to list the names of some of his most significant victories. So it went something like this. Please welcome Tiger Woods, 34-time tournament winner, whose victories include this tournament, and that tournament, and this other tournament, and this one too. Well, after she named about five or six different tournaments he had won, another golfer who was waiting to hit his first shot interrupted her and said something like, all right, all right, uh, that's enough. We get it. In other words, we, we get it. Tiger Woods is the best. You don't have to keep telling us about it. And now that particular golfer was, was joking. He got a, a big laugh from the fans, but his point was unmistakable. A Tiger Woods' greatness as a golfer is unmistakable. It is undeniable. It is obvious. Uh, well, why do I, I tell you that story? It's because in our text for today, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, you can go ahead and turn there. You can also find the text in your bulletin. Well, the Apostle Paul is doing something similar to the announcer that day. He is, he is busy making the greatness, the preeminence, the authority, the superiority, and the excellency of Jesus Christ absolutely clear to the Colossians. I like that announcer listed Tiger Woods tournament victories. Paul gives a list of the characteristics or nature of Jesus Christ, his works and accomplishments, his position and rank as the one who has first place in everything. The Apostle Paul heaps accolade after accolade on Jesus Christ so that the Colossians may clearly and fully understand the greatness and the sufficiency of their God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now remember, uh, Paul likely wrote this letter to the Colossians to, to strengthen them in the face of false teaching that was beginning to threaten the church that seemed to be present in the city or at least was emerging in the surrounding area. Now, we're not sure of the exact nature of that false teaching, but based on the, the content of the letter, it seemed that these false teachers claimed that something other than Jesus was needed to fuel the Christian life. And perhaps Jesus wasn't completely unimportant, but they, they needed more. They needed something other than Jesus. He wasn't quite enough. And so like that, that other golfer who interrupted the announcer as, as she was seeking, to, as she was seeking to, to list all those tournament victories from Tiger Woods, these false teachers were drawing attention away from Jesus. They were drawing attention away from his greatness. They were seeking to distract from it. It may have been that they even rejected Jesus' divinity. They claimed that he was not actually God. Well, therefore, in response... 
Paul sought to demonstrate the divinity and supremacy and authority and sovereignty of Jesus and encouraged the Colossians to fix their eyes on him as the one who was sufficient to meet all of their spiritual needs. So please follow along with me as I read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Friends, the main idea of this text, and therefore this sermon, is that Jesus is Lord of all. He is your great and all-sufficient Savior. Jesus is Lord of all, and he is your great and all-sufficient Savior. There are three points to, to help us consider that idea this morning. The first is Jesus, Lord of all creation. Jesus, Lord of all creation. The second is Jesus, the great Redeemer. Jesus, the great Redeemer. And third and finally, following Jesus. That's the first, Jesus, Lord of all creation. And Paul begins his exaltation of Jesus in this text by writing that he is the image of the invisible God. Well, that is to say at the incarnation when Jesus took on flesh, When God the Son became man and became visible, he uniquely revealed the Father to us. It is Jesus Christ who is the final and full revelation of God to man. So at the the beginning of John's Gospel, the beginning of the book of John, the Apostle John writes this in chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, in other words, Jesus, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. This is why John actually calls Jesus the word of God who took on flesh, because he is the fullest and the clearest revelation of God to man. God is revealed in his word, the Bible. We learn who God is through his words in the Bible. But the clearest and fullest revelation of God to man is the person of Jesus Christ. That's why John calls him the Word made flesh. And therefore, John goes on to write later in his Gospel that whoever has seen the Son has seen the Father. Whoever knows the Son knows the Father. In other words, whoever believes in the Son also believes in the Father. Whoever enters into relationship with the Son enters into relationship with the Father. Friends, it is only in and through Jesus Christ that you can see and know God. Paul does not stop there. He goes on to write that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. 
And now this phrase, firstborn over or firstborn of all creation, has been historically misunderstood and misused in the church. Now, early in the history of the church, in the 4th century, an influential teacher by the name of Arius began denying Jesus' divinity and claiming that Jesus was a created being. Now, his influence, well, and one of the texts that he used to make that claim was the, the verse that we just read right there, that Jesus is the firstborn over or of all creation. Now, his influence was so great that the leaders of the early church developed and adopted the Nicene Creed in defense of Jesus' divinity in response to this false teaching of Arius. So the Nicene Creed was adopted in AD 325 as a statement of biblically faithful Christian beliefs. It affirms the full divinity of Jesus Christ. In opposition to Arius, it affirmed that Jesus was not created, but was eternally existent. Well, friends, biblically faithful Christians ever since have affirmed the truth of the Nicene Creed. Uh, many churches, and maybe even our church, continue to quote and recite the Nicene Creed together. Yet even today, there are still those who deny the divinity of Jesus. And Jehovah's Witnesses and, and others use this, this verse, among others, to claim that Jesus was created, that he had a beginning, that he is not fully God, but friends, when Paul uses the term firstborn, Paul uses the term firstborn here. He does not mean that Jesus was the first living being created out of all things created. He's not saying that Jesus was created. No, firstborn is a reference to Jesus's title or his rank or his position. So in, in Greek or, or Jewish culture, the, the culture in which this letter to the Colossians was written, the firstborn was the family heir, the one with the right of inheritance for the family, the one who would inherit all the, the family's wealth and possessions. So to call Jesus the firstborn of creation or the firstborn over creation is to say that Jesus has something like the right of inheritance over all creation. It all belongs to him. Actually, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, the author of Hebrews writes that Jesus is the heir of all things. Now that's the idea being communicated here. And so as we see at the end of Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, all things were created for Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things. They all belong to him. Firstborn over all creation describes Jesus' supremacy over the entirety of God's creation. Jesus is over and above all creation. A firstborn is a title of his, is a, is a description of his reign or position. It is not making the claim that Jesus was created. And it is clear that this is what the Apostle Paul believes, because what he writes next makes it clear that Jesus in, in no way could be a created being. In verse 16, Paul wrote that it was by and through Jesus that all things were created. Jesus was active along with the Father and the Holy Spirit in creation. I mean, friends, who but God alone could create the heavens and the earth? Who but God alone could create everything that exists? Well, it was by and through and for Jesus Christ that all things were created. He was, an, he was the agent of divine creation. 
And this includes things in heaven and on earth, which is just another way of saying everything that exists, the entire universe. It's estimated that there are 100,000 million stars in our galaxy alone, the Milky Way. Scientists have also discovered upwards of 100 billion other galaxies in the universe besides our own, with their own millions of stars. Who created all of that? The answer is Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to write that he, Jesus, has also created all things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, those things that are visible refer to physical creation, the earth and the universe, those hundreds of millions of stars that we can see, the mountains and the sea that we can see. But the invisible, the thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, is a reference to the spiritual realm. Those things that we cannot see. Spiritual beings. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that our struggle, the Christian struggle, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. And so this reference to things that are invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, is a reference to the spiritual realm. So the point Paul is making here is that Jesus is the creator not just of the physical world, not just of the things that you can see, though that is abundantly true, but that he is also the creator of the invisible spiritual world. There is nothing that is outside of Jesus' control or authority. Friends, even Satan, who is real, but is a created being, only exists by the will of God. Satan can only act within the limits that God has placed on him. You want further proof of that? Just go read the book of Job. Christian Satan is real and, and demons are real, but you need not fear them because they do not exist outside of Jesus' power and control. Now, Jesus promised in the book of Matthew that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Well, how can we be so sure that the church will never be destroyed and that the evil forces of this world, both those visible and invisible, will never prevail against the church? And when Jesus says that, he's not talking about this individual church. Emmanuel Church of Fajera may not exist one day. And we hope that is not true, but it may not exist until Jesus comes again. But the church, the universal church, the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Well, why can we take confidence in that promise and that statement that Jesus made? Well, it's because Jesus is both head of the church, as we see in verse 18, and he is Lord over all created things, whether visible or invisible. He has authority over them all. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church because Jesus will not permit it to happen. My friends, Paul gives another accolade. Paul goes on to write that Jesus is before all things. In other words, he existed before anything else ever existed. He has no beginning and he has no end. He has always been and he will always be. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is presently active in creation. He is the one holding all things together. Why do atoms hold together? Why does the sun rise each day? Why do the seasons come? It is because Jesus is holding all things together by the power of his word. Friends, your life continues because Jesus is holding all things together. 
And friends, Jesus does not just sustain all things. All things were not just created by Jesus and through Jesus. All things were created for him. All things were created for his glory. He is the heir of all things. As the Australian pastor Richard Chen put it in his book, Captivated by Christ, God did not create the world because he was lonely or because he needed somebody to love. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been in perfect, loving relationship with each other since before time began. Every created thing, including you and me, is the overflow of God's love for his Son. It is almost as if there is something gratuitous, something unnecessary about creation. It is such an over-the-top expression of the Father's perfect love for his Son. But creation is anything but unnecessary. Everything visible, including you and me, was made for Jesus as an overflow of the Father's love for his Son. Friends, if everything was created for Jesus, everything was created for Jesus, that means you were as well. And you and I were both created for Jesus and his glory. And therefore, there is only one correct response to the surpassing greatness and authority of Jesus Christ. There's only one response to this truth that everything was created for Jesus and his glory. And the only right response is to follow him. He has all authority. He is creator. You are the creature. Therefore, you owe him all of your obedience, all of your love, all of your devotion, all of your honor, all of your praise, all of your life. Why the command of the Christian is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. He who is willing to lose his life for Jesus' sake, is the one who will save it. But friends, it is a, it's a joy to submit your life and your will to this glorious Savior. Let me just stop for a minute and think of the unsurpassed greatness and power of Jesus that was revealed in just those short three verses. Take a moment to, to marvel at his infinite beauty and his absolute authority. There's Jesus who created all things. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. If you are a Christian, this is your Savior. This is the one who took on flesh and came to live the life that you could not live and died in your place, willingly, on the cross. Died in your place that you might be reconciled to God. Friends, obedience and submission to this Savior should be your delight. Brothers and sisters, take, take time to think about and meditate on the person of Jesus Christ. It's by beholding Jesus' glory, by beholding Jesus' greatness, by beholding Jesus' great love and humility that we are transformed into his image. Because Jesus is God. He is the Lord of all creation. The one who is before all things and has existed from all eternity. And the one even now holding all things together. Friends, our second point, the second thing that I want you to see about Jesus this morning is that Jesus is the great redeemer. Now, the amazing thing about the, the God of the Bible is not just that he is great and mighty. It's not just that he is, is far above us, though that is true. He is the one who's created all things. But he's also personal. He's approachable. He drew near to us. He, he loves us. 
This is, this is what we see in the fact that Jesus is not just Lord of creation, but he is the, the great redeemer. Look again, starting at verse 18. He, Jesus, is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, as expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Friends, Jesus was not just the central to the work of creation, but he is also an agent of God's work of restoring his fallen creation. He is the agent of God's redemption. And when Paul writes that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, Paul's point is that Jesus is the beginning of God's new creation. He is the beginning of God's new creation. It is Jesus who has initiated God's work of redemption. Jesus is not only Lord over all creation, he is also Lord over God's new creation. He is Lord in both this age and he is Lord of the age to come. Now, Jesus was not the first person to ever be raised back to life in the Bible. If you just read through your Bible, you will find a few people who were raised back from the dead before Jesus himself was resurrected from the dead. But Jesus' own resurrection was something different. All those who were previously raised from the dead simply died again. But by his resurrection, Jesus defeated sin and death. And so therefore, the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 through 23. Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits, or firstborn, of all those who have fallen asleep, which is just another way of said died. Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, Jesus. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, or the firstborn, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And friends, it is Jesus' resurrection from the dead that gives life to his people, that gives them new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. The new has come. It is Jesus' resurrection that is the guarantee of eternal life. It is Jesus' own bodily resurrection that he was raised bodily that is the guarantee and pattern of our own future bodily resurrection. Friends, Christians will be one day raised bodily in Jesus Christ. We will get new bodies. We will get eternal bodies. Well, that brings us back to the fact that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head of his new covenant people. The church was founded by Jesus. It has its beginning in him. It is Jesus who gives life to his church. John 15, 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Jesus is the one with authority over his church. He gives it its mission. That is the, the great commission 
Jesus gives the church its marching orders, its mission. And by his spirit, he empowers the church to carry that mission out. My friends, do you see why this false teaching in Colossae was so dangerous? It was pointing the it was pointing the church away from the one who was its source of life. It was pointing the church away from Jesus Christ, claiming that he was not all sufficient. My friends, this is why we place such an emphasis on the word of God here at Emmanuel. If Jesus is the one who gives life to his church, we want to abide in him by abiding in his word. We want to hear from him. Well, how do we hear from Jesus Christ? It's by going to his word. If he is the one with authority over his church, we want to study his word that we might know what he requires of us and obey. Friends, this is the reason that we spend so much time in a prayer at Emmanuel. We want to be in communion with our Savior. We want to pray to the one who is our source of spiritual life, the one in whom we have new life. We want to behold him and the gospel as we come to his word and as we come to him in prayer. Friends, the the purpose of all this, the purpose of Jesus' exalted status as the one who is the beginning and the head of God's new creation, we see this in verse 18, is so that, the purpose of all this is so that Jesus might have first place in everything. That he might come to have first place in everything. He is the firstborn over all creation, and he is the firstborn over all new creation. He is Lord of all, number one, the greatest, head over all things, visible and invisible. Everything in this age and the age to come belong to Jesus Christ. What gives Jesus this great authority? What is it that gives Jesus this this exalted position? Paul tells us in verse 19, it's for or because God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. It is because Jesus is God, one with the Father. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwells. He is God and possesses all of the wisdom and all of the power and all of the spirit and all of the glory of God. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Notice how verses 18 through 20 of this passage mirror verses 15 through 17. Jesus was the firstborn of all creation because he was the instrument or the agent of God's creation. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead because he is also the instrument or the agent of God's new creation. It was through Jesus that God created the world, and it is through Jesus that God reconciled everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Friends, to to reconcile simply means to make peace. It is to to restore fellowship and right relationship between a, a holy God and sinful people. To restore what was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. We see that in verse 21, that sin has alienated people from God. And Paul writes that the Colossians were once alienated and hostile to God. Their minds were set against him. And the evidence that this was true was their evil actions. It was their sin. Friends, our own sin is evidence of our hostility towards God. And that's why we can say this was not just true of the Colossians, but it is true of every single person apart from Jesus Christ. 
In your natural, in your sinful state, you are hostile to God. You are born an enemy of God. You are not born good and society somehow corrupted you. You are born hostile to God. Your mind was set against him. And the evidence of this was your evil actions. I mean, even very young children disobey their parents. Even very young children hit other children. They scream and yell when they do not get the things they want. They sin. You're a parent. It did not take you very long to discover the sin of your children. But because God is the, and because God is the creator, because God is the giver of life, the just punishment for your sin is death. And it's an eternity in hell. But the good news of the gospel is that God the Son, Jesus Christ, both fully God and fully man, the Lord of all creation, the Lord of this age and the age to come, he drew near. He humbled himself and he came to earth. He took on human flesh in order to reconcile man to God. He came to make peace between man and God. We see in verses 20 and 22 that Jesus did this through his death on the cross. During Jesus' time on earth, he lived perfectly under God's rule, never once sinning. And because of his perfect life as a man, he was qualified to be the perfect sacrifice for sin that God required. This is why the Bible calls Jesus the spotless or the pure Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God. He took the punishment that we deserve for our sin by enduring the excruciating torture of physical death on a Roman cross. He hung, was beaten, and ultimately was suffocated on a Roman cross, taking the punishment that you deserve for your sin. He took all your shame, he took all your guilt, and he nailed it to the cross. And three days later, he rose again, showing that God had accepted his sacrifice for sin and enabling you to have new life in him. But Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. In him we can have new life, eternal life. Now when Paul writes in, in verse 20 that Jesus will reconcile everything to God, Paul is not teaching something of universal salvation here. He is not teaching that all people will be saved as a result of Jesus' work on the cross. No, peace can come in two different ways. Peace can come through willing submission, or peace can come through conquer, conquest, and defeat. Well, the well-known conqueror Genghis Khan, who lived back in the, the 1200s, back in the 13th century, well, as he was going on his rampage around the world at the time, he would famously tell the cities he came to invade to surrender rather than fight. He would call on them to surrender. And he would spare the lives of those who would surrender and those who would submit to his rule. But he would slaughter everyone who refused to submit. He slaughtered everyone who refused to surrender. Either way, peace came. My friends, Jesus is no Genghis Khan. He is perfectly good. He's perfectly kind. He's perfectly gracious and merciful and loving. But Jesus Christ is also perfectly just. Jesus demands your complete allegiance because he is the Lord of all creation. Everything was created by him and through him and for him. Friends, he demands your surrender. And those who refuse will one day face God's terrible wrath and judgment. Jesus is incredibly patient. 
One day is like a thousand years with the Lord. He desires that all come to repentance, that all surrender and submit to his will. But those who don't will spend an eternity in hell separated from God's goodness and love. So one Bible scholar put it this way. As the Prince of Peace, Jesus will ultimately quell or subdue all rebellion against God and his purposes. For believers, this means present reconciliation to God as his friends. As for non-believers and the demonic powers, Christ's universal reign of peace will be enforced on them. For their rebellion will be decisively defeated by Christ as conquering king so that they can no longer do any harm in the universe. Friends, peace and reconciliation are freely offered to you now. Jesus freely offers peace and reconciliation to you now. He freely offers his love and his friendship. But one day that peace will not be freely offered and it will come by the sword. And so if you are here and not a Christian, let me urge you to accept Jesus' offer of reconciliation today. Surrender to him. Submit your life to him. But Jesus is ready and Jesus is willing to accept your surrender, to forgive your sins, to transform you from an enemy of God into a friend of God. And friends, there is nothing, there is absolutely zero that you can do to reconcile yourself to God. There is no amount of good that you can do on this earth to reconcile yourself to God. God does not sit up in heaven comparing your good works to your bad works. And if your good works seem a lot better than your bad works... If they're outweighing your bad works, he does not accept you on that basis if you were good enough. Notice in our verses that God is the one who took the initiative to reconcile us. He did it all. There's no mention of anything that the Colossians did in these verses. The only way to have reconciliation with God, to have peace with God, is to place your trust in him. It's to confess your sins, to repent of your sins, which means to turn from your sins, and to place your faith in in Jesus Christ, to place your absolute trust and confidence in Jesus, his atoning work on the cross. Friends, present peace and reconciliation only comes through surrender. If you have any questions about that or you'd like to talk more about that, I invite you to talk to to me or, or Pastor Ben or another member of the church after the service. Although Jesus' work on the cross will not lead to some sort of universal salvation, it is true that Jesus did achieve something of cosmic reconciliation at the cross. The Bible teaches that sin did not just create hostility between man and God, but it also cursed the entirety of God's creation. Why are there droughts? Why are there natural disasters? Why are there weeds as well as flowers? Why is there sickness and disease? It is because sin marred God's good creation. It's because sin marred God's good creation. But at the cross, Jesus reconciled everything to God. So we read this in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 23. For the creation was subjected to futility, the curse of sin. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. 
Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Because all of creation, all Christians are waiting for redemption to be complete. Creation has not been fully set free from the curse of sin, just as we have not been yet completely set free from our body of sin. But redemption is not yet complete, but it will be. By his work on the cross, Jesus is the beginning of God's new creation. The new heavens and the new earth are coming. Uh, this is our hope as, as Christians, and it is an assured hope. And the reason it is an assured hope is because Jesus was raised from the dead. He is the first fruits, the firstborn of God's new creation. It's Jesus who is the great Redeemer, who has reconciled all things to himself by his blood shed on the cross. And that takes us to the, the third and final point of the sermon, which is following Jesus. In response to Jesus, who is Lord of all creation, to Jesus, who is the great Redeemer. A Christian noticed that in verse 22, the purpose, the purpose for which Jesus has reconciled his people the reason that Jesus has reconciled those who repent and believe, that he has reconciled you if you are a Christian, is in order to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before God. Christian, God has reconciled you. God has saved you in order to sanctify you, in order to make you holy and present you holy before God on the last day. He has reconciled you in order to conform you into his image. Well, this is, is where we find what, what theologians often call the already, not yet aspect of the Christian life. The already, but not yet aspect of the Christian life. The Bible says that you have already been made holy by Jesus' work on the cross. You have been set apart to God, consecrated. But Christian, you are not yet what you will one day fully be. You are not yet fully free from sin. You are not yet fully holy. Jesus has already been raised and already given you new life if you are a Christian. But the fullness of new life in Christ has not yet been realized. This will happen when he returns and you get your glorified body. Jesus has already defeated the rulers and authorities at the cross. We see that in Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Jesus has already defeated the rulers and authorities at the cross. He has already defeated sin and death. But his victory is not yet fully realized. And that will happen when he comes again. In some ways, the age in which we live is something like the mop-up operation. Uh, triumph has happened. Full victory has happened. We're in the, the last stages of the battle. We know the end. Jesus has triumphed. Christian, you are not yet what you will one day fully be, holy and faultless and blameless. Therefore, because that is true, because you are not yet what you will one day be, following after Jesus is to seek to become more and more like what you will one day be. It is to seek to grow in holiness it is, as, as Paul said back in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work. 
your joyful aim on this earth, Christian, should be to become more and more like what you will one day be. If you have been reconciled by the blood of the Lamb, you should have no desire to keep living in ways that are hostile to God. Your utmost desire should be to put off your old life of sin and joyfully submit in obedience to your great Redeemer, your great God, your great King. And that is the purpose for which you were created. It is the purpose for which you have been reconciled. Friends, how do you do this? How, how do you seek to grow to be holy and faultless and blameless before God? Well, there's so much that I could say. There's so much that Paul is going to say about that in the letter to the Colossians that we will come to. But the fundamental principle, where Paul is directing your attention here in the early part of this letter, is Jesus Christ. How do you grow in holiness? It is by looking to Jesus Christ. It is by beholding your great Redeemer, reminding yourselves of the amazing truths of the gospel, rehearsing the things that you see Paul writing here in Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 23, reminding you who Jesus is and reminding you who you were. Jesus, Lord of all creation, great Redeemer, who humbled himself and died for me. Who was I? Hostile, an enemy of God, a child of wrath, who Jesus came and died for, that I might be reconciled to God. Friends, if you want to grow in holiness, think on those things. Holiness comes as you know Jesus more and as you love Jesus more. And we see in verses 22 and 23 that Paul writes that you have been reconciled and you will be presented holy, faultless, and blameless before God on the last day, if indeed, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, and not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Now again, Paul is not teaching that you can lose your salvation. He is, is not teaching that you could find yourself reconciled to, one, reconciled to God one day, you're his friend one day, and then you're his enemy the next. No, this is the same Paul who wrote in Romans 8 that all who have been truly justified or reconciled will one day be glorified. In other words, those who have been reconciled will be presented faultless before the throne of God. The same Lord of creation, the same great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who saved you, is the one who keeps you by his power until the end. You are in the hands of this great Jesus Christ that we have just been speaking about. And what Paul is teaching is that your perseverance in the faith is the evidence of whether you have truly been reconciled to God. It is the evidence of your salvation. It is he or she who perseveres to the end who will be saved. And yet it is, this is a warning from Paul that you should not dismiss. These warnings given in scripture are one of the means that God has given to help you persevere in the faith. Those who have the Spirit of God within them hear these warnings and they respond to them. It awakens in them the fear of the Lord and a desire to pursue holiness, a desire to pursue the Lord. And God uses his words and his warnings to awaken a holy fear of God within the believer that they will follow after him and that they will persevere. Christian, you have a responsibility to persevere in the faith. You have a responsibility to remain steadfast. The Colossians were not to be shifted away from their confidence in Jesus Christ by the false teachers who came and were seeking to distract them from Christ. And if they were shifted away, and if they began to follow after these false teachers, well, they were to have no confidence that they would be vindicated before God on the last day. They would have no confidence that they would be presented holy, faultless, and blameless before Him. Friends, if you were shifted away, you were to have no confidence. 
that you will be presented holy, faultless, and blameless before God. Friends, the world, the flesh, and the devil all seek to shift you away from a confidence and steadfast faith in Jesus Christ. But you must persevere to the end to be saved. God is sovereign. He is the one who has reconciled all things through Jesus Christ. But friends, the Bible also teaches that you are responsible. Friends, the, the good news is that God has given you the means to persevere. He has given you the resources you need to persevere. But Christian, if you are to persevere, you must utilize the resources that God has given you. Jesus has given you his spirit. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives and dwells within you. The same spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead empowers and encourages your sanctification. To remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, you must not depend on your own strength, but prayerfully depend on the spirit who is at work with you. Your perseverance is not something that you can muster up in your own strength. It is God's power at work in you. But friends, God has given you the church to help you persevere. As one pastor put it, the church is a perseverance co-op. A perseverance co-op. In other words, we work together, we come together to help one another persevere. You need the church. You need other Christians. As members of this church, if you have joined this church, you know that you agreed to our church covenant, to live under our church covenant. In that church covenant, we have covenanted together as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ to help one another persevere in the faith. In our church covenant, we say we are to correct and warn one another, to remind one another of God's faithfulness, to teach one another God's word. The church is a perseverance co-op. God has also given you his word. You are to be filled with God's word because it tells of God's character and his promises. It reminds you of his, his past faithfulness to his people. It is through the word that you are reminded of your eternal hope. That when the new creation is ushered in, you will be free from your body of sin and presented holy and blameless before God. Perhaps most importantly, the word directs your eyes to your great Redeemer who has created you and has reconciled you. The word of God, the church, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit are like that golf announcer who reminds you of just how great Jesus is. They keep accolade after accolade on Jesus Christ to remember, to remind you who this great Redeemer is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him and through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. In him all the fullness of God dwells, and by him God is at work reconciling all things to himself through his shed blood on the cross. But brothers and sisters, those are accolades that you should never grow tired of hearing. Those are the things that we're going to be singing about Jesus, who is Lord of all creation, and who, who is our great Redeemer for all of eternity. Let's pray.